Thursday. It's February 10th. I'm Guy Adami. I'm always joined by Dan Nathan. This is Market Call. Today we're focusing on the latest Wall Street research. Joining us in a few minutes, EY from SoFi. Today's presenting sponsors for Market Call and their three, Dan Nathan. Fact set. Financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. SoFi, get your money right all in one app. And open exchange because they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Dan, hot day today for a number of different reasons. Hot day. You knew there was this, this was coming in hot guy, right? I mean, there was no chance in you know what that this is going to have a six handle on it. Just given the commentary, given the thought that the Fed is just con- continuing to push on at least all of their, you know, kind of jawboning about inflation, even in the throes of that market sell off over the last month. So, you know, I'm one of these people, guy, I feel pretty confident that it's not like the Fed is surprised on the morning of the CPI or the jobs number. They have a good sense of what's coming. Coming here, And so that's one of the reasons why I think they've been pushing forward. What's remarkable is the fact that the market, at least right now, doesn't seem to care. But at 7.5%, you know, I thought 7.5% would be the upper end of what they could come out with. And here we are. By the way, not that it matters and it's not for this show, but real inflation is probably either side of 11% if they actually were to measure it accurately. But that doesn't matter. The question is, what does it mean for markets? And you look at this probability for a rate hike in the Fed in the March meeting and it says it all. Now there's a chance. Now people are pricing in a chance of them going 50 basis points, which I think would surprise a lot of people. No doubt about it. I mean, I know that that was floated, um, you know, 50 basis point hike a month or so ago by Pershing Square's Bill Ackman at the time. It didn't seem like that's something the Fed would be doing. This CME Fed tracker is now pro- uh, pricing a 50-50 chance of that. I mean, listen, guy, I guess it really comes down to if they say we're going to do 50 and then we're going to be done for a while, you know, like that might be the sort of terminology that might kind of make the market kind of comfortable with the fact that the bond market yields have already moved, right? And then if they're going to do this kind of really big move, then maybe it takes further rate hikes off the table. They can let kind of the market kind of do its own thing in a way, right? Because we know that inflation is likely to moderate from these levels. We would hope it's going to moderate from it. We'll see. I, you know, it'd be interesting if they said 50 basis points, I'm going to watch for a while. That would surprise, I think, a lot of people. I don't know how the market would take it, but we'll see what happens again in March. But we got to look at yields because obviously I think that's one of the top stories of the day. And we look at this chart and we've been talking about it now for a while. Well, we're finally here. And this should provide, at least in the short term, a huge level of resistance in the form of 2%. Obviously, It was resistance in late 2019, and it's resistance now, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, you've been calling it correctly. You thought we'd see 2%. And I think a lot of investors in the equity markets figured that 2% is kind of that, it's that way back, you know what I mean? All the way back to where the pandemic, you know, we lowered interest rates to battle that pandemic. We started buying hundreds of billions of dollars of bonds. This is kind of coming full circle at a time where the taper is going to be done here. So I think that investors are getting, at least in the equity markets, comfortable with the idea that the the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is going to be back at this 2% level but you and i have kind of charted this thing out a lot on the market call if you look at this chart over 20 years you see that the 10-year u.s treasury yield it was six percent when the stock market topped out in 2000 it was five percent when the stock market topped out in 2007 it was about three and change when it topped out in early 2020 or so and i just don't see it going meaningfully higher when you think of all the sovereign debt 
debt that's been accumulated all over the world to battle this pandemic. Just the idea of just dealing with that debt, paying for that debt at higher interest rates would be a real drain on growth, in my opinion. And that's the great point, right? With global debt to GDP probably around 110% or so, it makes you wonder what could potentially happen if rates were to get out of hand, not only here in the United States, but around the world. By the way, outside of China, ex-China, as they say, you're seeing a lot of countries start to raise rates, which is one of the reasons I think it's unlocked our 10-year yield to go higher. Take a look at this chart, Dan, because I think this is one worth looking at as well. It says, I think it speaks to that trend line that we traded down to and bounced off of. Again, the question is, are we at resistance here? And will we retrace back to that trend line? A retracement probably gets us down to 1.5% or so in the 10-year. Yeah, and I would also say that breakout level near 1.7, that was the basically the high from a year ago, 177 or so. That's where the yield has been consolidating over the last few weeks before it just made this little move here. So that would be probably the next point on the downside. But you could find yourself, you know, maybe banging around between 1.65 and 2% on the 10. And at that point, I think equity investors probably get fairly comfortable, right? Like at least comfortable with the fact that inflation is likely to come in. Some of these hot jobs readings are likely to kind of moderate a little bit. And, you know, I just got to go back to this guy. And I know maybe I'm just the dumbest guy on the planet here. But at the end of the day, before the pandemic, what were we most concerned about? We're concerned about deflationary factors. We're, you know, big tech and, and all the deflationary things that happen based on the products and services that they provide for us. And we're talking about universal basic income. You know, I just don't think that this is going to be like a runaway sort of situation here. So again, if the Fed were to go 50 in March and then say they're going to continue to be aggressive here, I think that's the scenario where stock market investors have to take a pause and they have to rethink valuations. Danny Moses has mentioned looking at the 10 years incorrect, you should look at the two year. But now we're going to look at in terms of that spread twos, tens, because again, this is telling a bit of a story. We're probably as we're taping this or as we're live 58 basis points or so and as that line illustrates, I mean, we're probably at levels where we should sort of moderate. I've thought for a while, twos, tens are going to 30 basis points. I thought they'd get there in the form of 1.5% in the two-year, 1.8 in the 10-year. I'm sort of going to stand by that because I think things might moderate on the 10-year side of things. And maybe if the market does sell off, Dan, you see a flight to quality in the form of 10-year yields, which will knock yields lower. With that said, I think two years are going to continue to climb. What are your thoughts here on the spread? doesn't mean anything for the broader market. No, it doesn't. I mean, listen, you know, we've seen that 210 spread, you know, as low as, you know, it's been flat and the equity market didn't mind it so much. I guess your point is, is that the 10 years, the one coming in, maybe that's a better signal of expectations for growth. And the two year is really reflecting what the Fed is going to do to battle inflation. Let's just look at the S&P 500 here, guy, because you and I have been flagging this all week. It really is been consolidating here a little bit. It had a 12% peak to drop decline. It got back about half of those losses in the last week and a half or so. It's contending with that 200-day moving average, which is kind of giving it a little bit of a support there, but it's also kind of stuck at this level, which was the intersection of the breakout, breakdown level, 45.50 from October, and then again in January, and then that uptrend that had been in place for the last year. And so to me, when I just look at this chart, I say to myself, plenty of resistance here, some decent near-term support, but if we are getting to the other side of Q4 earnings season now, Really, the market's going to trade off of economic data and the potential for any kind of geopolitical dust-ups. And to me, that really speaks to the fact that maybe we see a retest of those lows just from a couple
couple weeks ago. It would make sense. 200-day moving average now sloping lower for the first time in a while because, as you can see, it's been a pretty much a straight line along with that trend line for the last you know year, year and a half or so. If that starts to roll over, stands to reason the broader market will in the form of the SPX. We'll see. Next chart we have to look at because it tells a similar story but a little bit different in terms of severity, I think, is the NDX because here's one that still remains below the 200-day. That 200-day is sloping as well. And that high we made recently never basically validated the high we saw in the S&P 500. Yeah, that 200-day moving average, I mean, literally it stopped to the penny a couple trading days ago at its highs right there being rejected. And, you know, I'll just say this about the NASDAQ in particular. We know that those top six names make up, I don't know, 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100. And the fact that many of them have done very well, Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon had that bump. The fact that this thing is so far from its 52-week highs tells you that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stocks in this index that just trade absolutely horribly, which also leads me to believe that, you know, the breadth is going to be something to keep a close eye on. And I'm not particularly optimistic at this point, given the fact that all of those good earnings are in the rearview mirror. And the fact is that these companies are not likely to beat the guidance they just gave. In my opinion, I think you probably see a re-rating in some of these mega cap growth names. And I think it happens over a period of time. It doesn't happen in a month. When we traded through those October lows, I think that was the tell. Obviously, we got back to the 200-day. I think we're going to fail here. I think you're right. Listen, I think if the cards, if the stars align, you could potentially see 13,000 or so. And that would make major sense because that was the lows we saw back in May, if you go back way in 2021. Anyway, the Russell is another thing we look at, Dan, because I think it's important. And we said it's probably going to sort of sift back to that 2100-ish level or so, which had been support for literally the last year or so. And here we are. Question is, with this 200-day moving average rolling over, do we see a retest of the recent lows we saw, I want to say, three and a half weeks or so ago? Yeah, I would just say this, that, you know, a year ago at this time when the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was making these highs, uh, you know, one-year highs at 175, 177 or so, the Russell was trading much better here. And the only way that the Russell 2000 small caps in particular get back towards that 200-day is if the economic data improved. It's just that simple in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with that. Let's bring in... Our friend EY from SoFi still sort of, I guess, licking her wounds that her Packers of Green Bay will not be playing this Sunday at the aforementioned SoFi Stadium. But Liz, you heard Dan and I just opine for the last 11 minutes or so. First of all, how are you? Second of all, thoughts on what we just talked about? I'm joining you from the SoFi and Rams hospitality space in downtown LA. I am doing lovely today. Let's talk first about the Super Bowl. I'm not licking my wounds anymore, guy. I'm here. I'm having a great time. I'm going to cheer for the Rams. I want the Rams to win. I'm excited about our stadium. And there's always next year. You never know. Somebody told me the other day they think Rogers is going to stay. So maybe next year is our year. We'll find out. Other than that, not great about the CPI print. So you guys talked about yields already. You talked about the Russell 2000, which still continues to be the bane of my existence. But from a yield perspective, from an inflation perspective, I think we're in trouble here. And I wrote about oil this week. That's a big part of it. But I do think we're in trouble. And I think that the Fed is in a tough spot. I know that the probability of a rate hike 50 basis points in March went from, I think, 30% to 50% just on that inflation read. I think it might even be higher than that. I think they have to get ahead of this, use a bigger hammer, and really drive it home that we have to control inflation. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to go super high, super fast. 
but I think they need to come out of the gates hot. I was just going to say that there's just a lot of time between these two Fed meetings, and we know that the Fed is going to be active in between there. But, you know, sometimes the market kind of does what it needs to do before the Fed has time to act. And so I just think that when you see the odds change so dramatically, that means they're they're happening in real big markets here. And I wonder if the market's just going to kind of push them into it. And once the market expects it, it's really hard to kind of not give them what they're expecting. I'm just curious your thoughts on that. So do you think that we will see some data that might move that that kind of percentage probability back towards, let's say, you know, 25 basis point hike, and then we just kind of go on that sort of schedule from here on out? You know, I think it's possible if the Fed says something, right? If we have a bunch of Fed governors that come out and say 50 basis points is too aggressive, we don't see that as the likely scenario, then maybe the market backs off a little bit. But with an inflation print at 7.5%, and a lot of the narrative last month was that maybe that was the peak. Obviously, it wasn't the peak. And we still have to get February numbers, which I think are going to continue to come in hot. So I don't think it starts to moderate until we get into the March-April timeframe, That next Fed meeting is March 16th. By then, we're going to have another hot February print. I think that they might have to do this. And you're right. Once the market gets its expectations in a place, what the Fed does matters, right? If it does something that surprises the market to the downside, everything goes risk off. And it's like wheat in a field, right? The wind blows and everything blows in that direction. So they have to be really careful about how the market feels about this. I remember that scene in Gladiator, if you recall, the wheat blowing and Russell Crowe putting his hand over it. That was a great movie, by the way. I think underrated. That's just my opinion. You know it's not underrated, this note on oil. I love it. And you're basically lining up oil and recessions and what it means. This is a really thoughtful note. I'm thrilled that you didn't put in one of those stupid headlines that you typically do because you know they tweak me. (laughs) But this one is okay. The betting line on oil into the Super Bowl. Yeah, I, well, I wanted to do a football analogy, but I couldn't think of things that worked as good as betting. So I, t- I went betting. I thought it worked just as well. And I got serious about this one. That's why there wasn't kind of a hokey headline. Talk about energy, go up, jumping on the bandwagon. The flows into XLE are astronomical and oil continues to rise. It's got this sort of relentless rise that keeps going on. I don't think we're talking enough about what that can mean. I don't think we're talking enough about the chart that shows a spike in oil before almost every single recession. Now, I want to be really careful. I am not calling for a recession. But what can happen when the price of oil spikes is that, especially in a period where there's inflation in a bunch of other components, you've got an oil inflation that is going to hit consumers even harder because it's not really a negotiable object that we can buy. You're going to buy it no matter what. So if it continues to rise in price, it hits the pocketbooks harder. And if wage inflation isn't keeping up, that's what starts to hurt consumer spending. Now, that takes a little while to work itself through, but this can be a problem. I agree with you, Liz. And you said, mention the chart. Picture tells a thousand words, as they say. Well, you mentioned here it is. I mean, WTI and talking about it's, you know, ahead of recessionary periods. And we're right there. So, again, you're not calling for it. None of us are. But you go back in history and, you know, it seems to work pretty well. Yeah, it does. And and just think about the numbers here. So since December 1st, we've seen a 34% rise in, I used Brent crude in the note, but a 34% rise in oil. You've seen a 27% rise in the energy sector of the S&P. Those are huge numbers. And the spread just between the best performing sector in the S&P, which is energy right now, 
and the worst performing sector is also astronomically large. It just can't possibly stay that big. So either oil prices need to come off of this hot top right now, or we're going to see something that gets overheated and sends the market down. Now, again, I want to talk about just real quickly recessions, bear market recessions and bear markets without a recession. Because if you have a recession and a bear market, that bear market usually looks like 25 to 35 percent, maybe 40 percent. If you have a bear market without a recession, it usually gets to around 20 percent and then snaps back. So there's a chance that if we get a correction because of some of this inflation and pressure, because of some of the things that the Fed says, if it's a bear market, maybe it gets to 15, 20 percent. But then we come back from it. I think that's a more likely scenario than this actually throwing us fully into recession. No, I think it's a great point. It's a really is a thoughtful note. It's an important note because I think people are underestimating, in my opinion, the importance of oil and what it means to not only our economy, but global economies. And as you said correctly, there's nothing to negotiate here. I mean, prices are what they are and you got to pay regardless of price. And as I've said, not only me, but thousands of people over the years, the only real way to combat higher prices and commodities is with higher prices. And I just don't think we're at the pain threshold yet, Liz Young. Yeah, I don't think we are either. I mean, if you look at where oil peaked back in 2008, it was in the 140s. So there's still a lot of ways to go before we would get to that really scary spot in the dollars per barrel. But we're up above $90 a barrel in WTI and Brent. That didn't seem to scare markets too much. I think $100 a barrel does scare markets, and it's just a mental threshold. But triple-digit oil is something that we haven't seen in a while, and it's something that I'm not sure consumers are ready to pay for. No, Dan, we have a chart here. I mean, we got to your levels of resistance. We've sold off on the back of some seemingly detente in Eastern Europe and effectively in the Middle East. We'll see how long that lasts. I've said for a while, Dan, Nathan, that I thought the real fireworks would take place, both Russia, Ukraine and China, Taiwan, post-Olympics. And I think we have about a week or so left in the Olympics and we'll see what happens, Dan. Yeah, you know, listen, when I look at the waves of this uh, oil move over the last year, they've obviously been, you know, affected by Delta over the summer and then the Omicron variant in November, that SPR release kind of helped that decline there. I look at the kind of peak to trough declines, they're getting bigger here. And when we look at that move from the low 60s to the low 90s here, you know, I just suspect that we probably have the kind of height fear about the geopolitical sort of situation here and you know maybe the reopening of the globe it's just it's gonna have fits and starts here man you know so the other thing i'll just say is that tying it back together and i know liz you are a student of history here the last time the fed started to taper and come off zerp and start really signaling that they're going to be raising interest rates is 2014-15 we had a little bit of a growth scare from china and again guy you said it before the chinese are easing as we are all raising right now what happened to oil, it got cut in half. It actually went down 60 some percent over the two year period. So to me, I'm not ready to just believe you might see a spike up to 100 bucks. That kiss might be it. And then I think we see oil going back to the sort of mentality that a lot. Listen, all these are we talk about autos. We're going to talk about them again. Their fleets are going to be what 50, 60 percent EV by the end of this decade. I just don't see this as a sustainable sort of thing. And when you look at the equities here, I think, Liz, you also said the XLE, which is primarily Exxon and Chevron. It's gone parabolic. When's the last time you kind of wanted to bet on those two names to kind of lead the S&P higher? I just don't. Yeah, I agree. And a couple other points I would make. So when you look at what usually happens into a rate hike cycle and just the sectors in the S&P 500, you usually see cyclical sectors lead into the hiking cycle. But then once the hiking starts, 
it gets much more murky. And actually six months out, you see growth sectors come back in and show some strength. So it makes sense to me that energy does well up until that March meeting, and then we'll see what happens. And I finished the note by saying, how do we all beat the dealer? And in this case, the dealer is the market. You beat the dealer by oil coming off of those high levels without throwing us into a recession. Well, right now you're beating a dealer by hoping for a three if you're sitting on 18. If you remember, of course, James Kahn did that in the great movie, The Gambler. And that was sort of it for him, his gambling career. I'm going to have to say this is it for you in your this week's version of Market Call. I think everybody in California right now is on their Internet, which is why yours might be a bit spotty. But I will tell you, I love the fact that you match your watch band with your nail color and your dress. It's banging. It's a whoop. It's a whoop band. Liz Young, thank you. Check out Liz Young. Follow her on Twitter, at Liz Young Strat, and sign up for SoFi's daily newsletter at SoFi.com backslash daily to read Liz's articles every Thursday. Thanks, EY. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Dan Nathan, we had a huge call out of Disney yesterday, and we talked, we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. Obviously, Disney got throttled okay. on the back of the Netflix release. I think Disney got as low as 132 but I think this earnings release yesterday after the bell surprised a lot of people. Yeah, it did. First thing, you, you surprised me. Are you hitting on 18, guy, hoping for threes? I want to play blackjack with you, buddy. I mean, well, come that's, on. I'm telling you, you should go to Blockbuster this weekend, rent The Gambler if you're out there in California. James Conn yeah. killed it in that movie. I mean, a very underrated, great gambling movie. And, yes, he sat there. He hit on 18. And I will tell you, since you asked, I actually did exactly the same thing at a casino in Connecticut many years ago, and people looked at me quizzically for obvious reasons. I you didn't know get what the I, aforementioned three. You know what I looked at it? I said, my boy, my boy, what did they do to my boy? All right, let's move on to this Disney thing here, guy, because I just that was our little homage to the godfather. Sonny, obviously, was also played by James Conn. All right, this one, you know, guy, I'm surprised the stock was up like 8 percent or so in the aftermarket it was a really good beat across the board here and obviously the subs and disney plus was the focus but the main story were the parks and and that's a great i mean thematically that's great for all of these experiential like reopening sort of trades whatsoever but you look at this one year chart or this is a multi-year chart that we have of disney it just totally broke down and you look at all the volatility that we've seen over let's say the last year and a half and a lot of that has to do with the pandemic but it also has to do with the shifts in these subscriber numbers for Disney Plus. And you and I were talking about it earlier in the week. I mean, that is the only metric that's really mattered for Netflix. Obviously, their margins and their spend on original content, but it seems like Disney now is stuck in that corner of vortex of subscriber growth. But I don't know. I would have expected this thing to get back to that breakout level, and it's not. Let's see if it can hold those gains. We spent some time talking about Alphabet last week after that great quarter, gapped a new high, and then filled in the whole gap. This thing better stay above that green line because that was the gap from the November quarter where investors were very disappointed in their subgrowth. You're exactly right. And if you look, that recent move down to 132, we actually filled a gap from fall of, I want to say, 2021 or thereabouts, which mm -hmm. was interesting. And now here we are back in this range. I think we're going to take out that gap that we're looking at where the red line is. If you look, it's probably about the 172 or so level. It makes sense. I think the average price target for analysts is about $189. Not that that matters particularly, but I think enough damage was done to the downside where Disney can start to make a move. I think it caught a lot of people by surprise. The EPS number was great. And the Disney Plus number, again, surprised a lot of people to the upside in the wake of what was a pretty lousy Netflix number. So 
I'm with you. The Fed should be trading better than it is, quite frankly. Maybe mm -hmm. the CPI numbers gotten people scared in a lot of different names, but I still think Disney should trade higher from here. I think Twitter is a name that you're watching for a lot of different reasons. I like this name. I think Twitter can surprise people too. This line suggests we're about to see exactly that. Well, maybe. I mean, those results were not particularly great, Guy. And the short term, the near term guidance for the current quarter was okay. I mean, they are not growing subs. They use that monthly, daily, monetizable, active user thing. And it's just not growing. It came in less than expected. And so what they did was they also kept their long term aggressive growth targets for that metric and for revenue intact. And, you know, out looking out to 2023, they have a new CEO. I got to tell you, I know a lot of people were very lukewarm on the choice of their their prior CTO to take over for founder CEO Jack Dorsey when he resigned in late November here. And this company, man, I mean, like literally, if they're going to try to innovate from a technology standpoint, they're going to have to be spending a lot more money or do some M&A or who knows. But this is at a really precarious spot. I think headed into the quarter, if it was a beaten raise, you and I were thinking, well, we just broke that very steep downtrend. You look at that breakdown level back near 50, it could be a moonshot to that, especially when you saw just how much Snap moved. It was up nearly 60% or so after their earnings last week. Snap on Friday, guy, gained the market cap of Twitter. And Twitter is a company that basically gets revenue the same way Snap does, all right, largely through advertising. And Twitter is expected to have more sales this year than Snap. So the, the valuation disparity is massive. Something's got to give here with Twitter. The CEO should have taken the opportunity, should have kitchen sinked the rest of the year so they can start beating their numbers because at some point they're going to have to guide down and the stock is just not i mean i'm surprised it's not down more given what they said yeah it's not equipped for a guide down clearly but what i will tell you in terms of surprise you know 68 down to 32 that's the red line you know 50 percent retracement of that move is effectively 50 bucks which was a cent you low back in the spring if you look at where that line starts and i think it could get there and still be a company that's not firing on all cylinders so we're a couple standard deviations away from the 200-day moving average. We typically don't stay there for long. Obviously, the 200-day moving average is going to go lower, but I think the stock can trend higher in the meantime. We'll see. I think the risk-reward sets up okay, just in my opinion. The other thing we need to look at, a lot of stuff going on in the auto section. Surprised me, quite frankly, because you know I thought GM was a moonshot to 75. It certainly looked that way when it was in the high 60s. I thought the same thing of Ford. I thought a Ford was a moonshot to 30, and when it was a $24.5 stock, it certainly looked like that. Both of them have reversed course, and a lot of analysts now tapping the brakes. Great job by Amanda Diaz in terms of their views. It was Adam Jonas earlier in the week from Morgan Stanley. And now we're seeing it from no more. A lot of price cuts going on in these names, Dan. Yeah, it's just really, I think, important for the viewer to understand just how quickly sentiment shifts in stories like this. I mean, think about it. I mean, GM and Ford were considered, let's say, nine months ago, just lay up both value plays, but also secular plays, right? And kind of kind of like drafting off of Tesla's EV ambitions. And they kept on ramping up their ambitions and being very vocal about it and having analyst days about it. And the stocks went absolutely berserk and look at what happened in 2022 they've absolutely gotten slammed chip shortages supply chain issues are still a thing and so you know to me i'm with you guy i think you take a shot on both gm and ford at these technical levels gm is sitting right on that big support level to me that looks sort of interesting and then ford on the flip side i mean i don't know do you have a preference on who you think executes better they've basically been ratcheting up their ambitions and they've been talking them up but then i guess the supply chain 
issues with chips is the thing that keeps causing them to take a step back here. Is the one that you like better than the other because Carter Braxton Worth, he threw up a Ford chart at the beginning of the week. It was a log chart. It was from the bottom of the pandemic lows here, and it's right sitting on that uptrend. That looks also pretty attractive to me too. Yeah, I like Ford better than GM because a lot of different reasons, not least of which this chart. I mean, you're in a very defined uptrend. And if you look at it, you know, we've traded on either side of this band a number of times over the last year and a half, two years. And I think it's going to continue to do that. And by definition, if I think that's the case, now we're at the bottom of that range, stands the reason we're going to test, take a look at the top end of that range at some point as well. I don't think it should be 17 and a half bucks. I don't think it's going to 28 in a straight line, but I could definitely see it get to the midpoint which is about 22 and a half or so. So the autos surprised me with how quickly they traded lower. I think people were just quick to pull the ripcord and take profits. We'll see. But what we got to look at here is a Butters piece, one for the road, because what, where would we be without John Butters? And this is basically 60% of the companies effectively have cited inflation on their call for obvious reasons, Dan, but we haven't really seen numbers like this maybe ever. Yeah, no, it's interesting that he mentions that consumers, uh, consumer staples and materials um, have the highest percentage of companies citing inflation. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that those are also sectors that are doing very well. So putting this together back to the stock market guy, I mean, inflation is not 100% a bad thing. We just talked about some of the supply chain disruptions, which are causing companies, you know, to spend more on shipping and, and there's a lot of double ordering, that sort of thing. But for staples companies who are able to kind of push through some of those increases, it's, it's not been a bad thing. I think it's really important to kind of keep uh, an eye on this. You see just, you know, the kind of, there's no downside if you're a corporate management right and you see a really poor visibility in your business just talk about inflation because everyone else is talking about it i mean so if you're not talking about it then the assumption is that you're doing better about it and that's another thing that we saw as it related to supply chain issues with the autos and some of these guys were doing better than the others tesla in particular and they were getting lots of praise for doing a great job with their supply chain and then the next quarter they come out and say ah that was just a blip so i just think it's important to kind of track this stuff so thanks to butter for keeping us focused on the sectors in the S&P that are citing it the most. That's exactly right. If, you ha- if you're not talking about inflation on these calls, it, the market will assume that means you're dealing with it somehow, which probably is, is an assumption they'll make, but probably not the right assumption, Dan. I know you're out there in California. You're enjoying Super Bowl week. Good for you. But that has been Market Call, folks. I hope you've enjoyed it. Once again, thank our sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. Throw SoFi in there as well because EY joined us, albeit her, I guess, what is that, bandwidth or connectivity wasn't particularly good. Check us out at 5 p.m. post-market analysis and check out Market Call Charts with Carterworth Monday at 11 a.m. We'll see you then. See you then.